You have a secret hideout? I want to see it. Where is it? Oh, come on. I won't tell anybody. Pinky swear. Wait. Is it dark? I got a flashlight in my book bag, so I'm ready. Oh. It's up there? You can't go up there. Kids that go up there don't come back. He can see you up there. He waits down below to spot kids on the roof. It's easy because there's nothing blocking his view. When there's one on their own, or, or they wander away from the group, then he strikes, quick as lightning. He's not big, and he won't act mean when you first meet him, but he's bad. He'll take you to a place where no one can see you, where no one can hear you, or smell you after you're dead. He likes hurting kids. He likes hearing them scream. He doesn't kill them right away either. He takes his time. And when he's done, he gets real hungry. So he eats them. He gets kids like other people, gets hogs at the butcher shop, cooks them in the oven, and their parents never know. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't know if you saw him. He doesn't look like a bad guy. They say he's little and old. He has gray skin and sharp teeth like a vampire. His eyes don't look like a person's eyes. They're real big and hollow, like a werewolf. And his nose is pointy, like a beak. He's real skinny, so you know he's always hungry. He dresses like he's respectable, in a hat and tie, but he's not. He'll be real nice to you at first, all pleases and thank yous, and maybe he'll hold your hand or ask you to sit on his lap, but you can't. You can never do that. If you see him, you run. Do you hear me? Because once he has you, it's too late. I've seen him, you know. I bet you've seen him too. Down on the corner, staring, acting like he's a normal man, but he's not. So you can't go up there, do you hear me? You don't want to be his next meal. Who is he? What are you, stupid? You know who he is. Of all the monsters, he's the worst. Worse than anything you'll ever find under a bed. Those monsters probably bow down to him. That they made him their king. He's the one we're all afraid of. Every kid in the whole universe. He's the one our parents warn us about. The one that can see all and lurks in every shadow. He's the boogeyman. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. this one no you're gonna like it less as it goes on reminds me of like Hansel and Gretel yeah and it will continue to do so that's a a good analogy hey Leslie hey Holly hey Beans before we even get started on this one I'm going to give our first ever graphic content warning oh (laughs) yeah 
You guys wanted Albert Fish. I, and I'm going to give them to you, but be forewarned, it isn't pretty. I know some of you listen with your preteens occasionally, and I just wanted to let you know that they should skip this one. It is too much for younger listeners. We love you, little fiendlets, but go listen to Britney another time. Just like, yeah, go, go back, back and, to Britney. Go back and play her again next <laughs> week. And I generally don't give trigger warnings because most folks know what they're getting into with true crime. But I will give you all a heads up before any very graphic descriptions in this case that you might want to hit the skip button a couple times. But, Leslie, you can't skip. I know. That sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you have to listen. You are live and in person. And if you guys want to see more of us live and in person, then hop on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. And we have so many awesome ideas we would like to put into action. So please, please Please, please, please don't forget to live a, leave us a little of that life-affirming validation so we can get to a city near you. Let's Great. travel. <laughs> and if you want even more We Would Be Dead in your life, head on over and support us on Patreon. For just a couple dollars a month, you'll get access to our extra monthly mini-sodes, our patrons-only podcast 30-minute horror movies, discounts in our merch store, VIP live chats before our campfire story events, and on-air toast dedicated just to you— and more. And if all of that was a little too much for you, you can simply share any of our social media posts to your social media. Share your favorite episode. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell that guy who walks his dog past your house every morning. He needs something good to listen to. Look at him. Then your friends and that guy can become fiends and we can all hang out together. That would be nice. With that weird guy. Yeah. He has a dog. He can't be all bad. Gary. That's good. He could be a Gary. Yeah. Neighbor Gary, hanging out with Welcome Center Barb. Yeah. We're creating a tribe. It's going to be great. <laughs> um, and I think that's all I have for right now. Leslie, do you have anything to add this week before we begin? Oh, I feel like I want to because it'll prolong this episode, <laughs> getting to it. Yeah, it's so graphic. Maybe we'll make Leslie read some of the really graphic stuff <laughs> that she doesn't know. I know. Holly said she was nervous to read some parts of her story today, and I was like, why don't you just, just pass it over to me? I don't know what's coming. <laughs> so let's see what happens when we do that later. That'll be fun. And um, I apologize. I'm suffering from, like, a little summer cold, so I don't know if I'll get, like, nasally during Aww, this episode, but that's okay. I'm just a fair warning. I might have a little somber voice today. <laughs> it's all right. It's hard to talk during this one anyway. Yeah. I'm just going to make sounds. <laughs> probably. That's probably 100%. You guys definitely asked for this one, though. I put the option to do him or Andre Chikatilo, and the response was resounding. So apparently you like real, 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 real gross. Thanks, fiends. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. On with the show. Summer of 1924 was hot in New York City. Sticky hot. East Coast hot. The kind of hot that is only around for a little while, so it has to make its mark. Kind of like last week here in New Jersey. That was rough. Ooh, it was hot. July 14th was the third in a string of humid 86-degree days on Staten Island. Children were listless and looking for things to do. They roamed the area in hordes, finding fields to play ball in and shady spots to pass the time trading baseball cards. So, when nine-year-old Francis McDonald told his parents he was going out to play catch with his friends, they thought nothing of it. Normally, 
When the sun began to sink and dinner time loomed in their bellies, kids would start trickling home. We all remember that. Like, for me, it was when the streetlights came on. Yeah. Same. I don't know how many streetlights there were back then. It could have been the same. I didn't look up streetlights in 1924. Like a cowbell. (laughs) Like a dinner bell. Like a triangle on the porch. (laughs) It's the Old West now. (laughs) And so when the last of the bat-trailing, sweaty-faced neighborhood boys passed their window and still their son's dinner sat cool on the table, the McDonald's began to worry. After walking the perimeter of the neighborhood and turning up nothing, the McDonald's did precisely the right thing and called the damn cops. And their last name is McDonald. For some reason, I want to say McDonald sometimes. Mm. I don't know why. Just yeah. <laughs> Wait, for- what is it? McDonald. Okay, McDonald. I just want to say McDonald. Like oh. Irish. I, yeah. The police organized a search, and before long, Francis's mangled body was discovered hanging from a tree in the woods near his home. He had been sexually assaulted and then hanged with his own suspenders. There were extensive lacerations to his legs and abdomen, and his left hand's hamstring had almost entirely been stripped of its flesh. The police had never seen anything like this. It was the most gruesome display they had ever encountered. And it happened so quickly. One moment he was headed out to play catch, and the next his body was being removed from the woods. Ugh. Yeah. How did this happen? Surely someone must have seen something. There was no cover of darkness, and the neighborhood kids had all been together that day. And so the police went off in search of Francis's friends, who told them that they had seen Francis being escorted into the woods by an older man with thick gray hair and a large gray mustache. In fact, they went on, he seemed to be gray all over. Ew. I know. This description triggered alarm bells in some of the other neighborhood residents. Another person came forward asserting that they saw Francis being escorted down a mossy path by a gentleman who fit the exact same description. Francis's own mother had seen this man as well. She said, quote, he came shuffling down the street, mumbling to himself and making queer motions with his hands. I'll never forget those hands. I shuddered when I looked at them. How they opened and shut, opened and shut, opened and shut. Ew. I know, it's terrible. I saw him look toward Francis and the others. I saw his thick gray hair and his drooping gray mustache. Everything about him seemed faded and gray. He looks like a specter. There will be pictures. There is a reason they call him the boogeyman. Why was his hands just opening and shutting? I'm imagining him doing like the chicken dance. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. I think it's more like a... What do you think? Like a a fist thing? Yeah. I think... I mean, there's a lot going on with this guy, but, like, I've been referring back to Elisa Lam a lot recently, but, like, remember when they said she was making a lot of weird motions oh, with her yeah, hands? yeah, like the manicness. Yeah, and they, I think we talked about that with Richard Trenton Chase, too. Yeah. I remember Andrew saying something about how, like, there's a thing that people who are suffering from those kind of, like, hallucinations and stuff will do with their hands. Well, it always so. comes back to Richard Trenton Chase. It does. <laughs> He's His was really gross, too. Um Glad we did him early on because, yeah. man, he's like a point of reference nonstop. And so a new monster was born. The gray man, as he would be referred to in certain circles, would strike terror into the hearts of the children of New York. But not so much that they would know him when they saw him, because that's the worst part about the gray man. He seems harmless until he's not. Oh. He had other names, too. In February... Um, 1927 in Brooklyn was the exact exact opposite of July 1924, icy, cold, and bleak. 
There was little for the children to do when they weren't occupied with school, and most parents were busy with work much of the time, and so children would be left to amuse themselves as best they could. On the 11th of February, three-year-old Billy Beaton was in the hallway of his apartment building playing with his four-year-old neighbor, Billy Gaffney. The boys were being supervised by a 12-year-old neighbor boy, welcome back, neighbor boys, who was also watching his infant sister. The boy's sister was asleep just inside his apartment. And while the little boys were playing, their babysitter heard his sister crying from inside. But the boys were playing so nicely that he didn't want to interrupt them. So he ran in quickly to get the baby. Don't ever leave preschoolers alone in a hallway. Terrible. He's a 12-year-old boy. Oh, yeah. It was a different time. I don't hold him responsible, but like, going forward, you can't leave him alone for a second. You got to bring him with you. And by the time he made his way back to the hallway with the baby in hand, both of the boys were gone. Oh, my goodness. The older boy, of course, looked everywhere for the two little ones. And when he couldn't find them, he enlisted the help of some adults who eventually found Billy Beaton alone on the roof of the building. When they asked him what happened to his friend, four-year-old Billy Gaffney, he said four terrifying words. The boogeyman took him. Oh. And so he did. These cases would remain unsolved for the next 10 years until the gray man finally slipped up and got himself caught. On May 28, 1928, a young man named Edward Budd heard a knock on his front door. Edward lived in Manhattan with his family, which included his parents, Delia Flanagan and Albert Budd, and his siblings, George, Albert, Grace, and Beatrice. Edward had placed an ad in the Sunday edition of the New York World, which is a newspaper, stating that he was looking for some work out in the country. And most likely by saying this, he meant that he wanted to be hired on as like a farmhand or a day laborer or something. Something that would give him independence and take him out from under his parents' roof. Edward was, after all, 18 at the time, and he thought it was high time he grew up and experienced the world for himself. Admirable. Yeah. Young man, gonna get a job, strike out on his own. Good for you, Edward. When Edward's mother, Delia, answered the door, she was met with the sight of a kindly old man with a full head of gray hair and a large, gray, bushy mustache. Fucking mustache. Come back to the mustache again. Okay. <laughs> the man told Delia that his name was Frank Howard, and he had seen an advertisement in the paper from a man living at this address looking for work. He said he was a farmer who lived in Farmingdale, New York, and that as he was getting up in age, he was looking for some stronger young boys to take on some of his workload. Delia, ever the busy mother with little ones hanging onto her skirts, sent her youngest, Beatrice, to go into the other room to fetch her brother. When she returned with him, Mr. Howard was so taken with the sweet little girl that he handed her a nickel for her efforts. He also remarked at how strong Edward looked and how he could certainly use a young man such as him out on his farm. Mm. Mr. Howard told Delia that he had quite a few children himself, six to be exact, and that he raised them all on his own after his wife walked out on him many years ago. He seemed at ease in the company of the children, and they with him, and Delia took an immediate liking to the old stranger. Mr. Howard promised to hire both Edward and his friend Willie and went on his way, saying that he would come to pick them up that Saturday and pay each boy $15 a week for their efforts, which at the time was a very generous offer. Edward was ecstatic. He never thought he would be able to find work so fast, and Mr. Howard seemed like an honest and kind man. The Buds were a poor family, struggling mightily to get by on what little they had. And seeing such a lucrative future for their son was a dream that was almost too good to be true. Remember, at this point in time, we are living in Depression-era New York, and people are not living lavishly. Poverty is all around. 
Many families are sharing one living space. We've talked about the depression before. Right. It's it's a time where $15 a week would have been huge, mm-hmm. especially for a, an 18-year-old just striking out on their own. Yeah. So this seemed amazing. Saturday arrived, though, and Mr. Howard did not. But the Buds did receive a handwritten note in his place, claiming that he had been detained at home with some business on the farm and that he would be along the next day. True to his word, at 11 a.m. the next morning, Mr. Howard arrived at the Bud's door. He brought with him a basket with pot cheese and fresh strawberries from his farm as a little gift for the family. Pot cheese? Yeah, like soft cheese. Yeah. No, (laughs) not like pot cheese. Yeah. That would have been way more fun. Yeah, but like, this guy doesn't seem so bad. I mean, he's bringing his pot cheese and then strawberries for afterwards? Wow. He's not too bad. No, it's like a little pot full of cheese. Okay. (laughs) The Buds were so taken with Mr. Howard that they persuaded him to stay for lunch, and so he did. When the family all began to assemble for the meal, 10-year-old Gracie caught Mr. Howard's eye. She was a beautiful child, still in her Sunday best from church that morning. The two seemed to like each other. Mr. Howard was very kind to Gracie, having her count the cash in his pocket and praising her intelligence. Grace sat on his knee and kissed him on the cheek. The grandfatherly man seemed to miss the presence of little ones. After lunch, Mr. Howard said that he had to attend a birthday party in the city for his niece, but that the boys should pack their belongings and be ready to go in a few hours. And then an idea struck him. Why didn't little Grace accompany him to the party? The family was a little uncertain at first, but Mr. Howard said there would be lots of other children there. There would also be games and cake And the thought of little Grace enjoying herself with his nieces and nephews brought him such joy that it would be no trouble at all. He gave Mrs. Budd his sister's address in the city and told her that he would return Gracie by 8 o'clock and then take the boys back with him to the farm. So I assume this is a live-in job for these boys. If they're going to be farmhands, they're probably waking up at the crack of dawn and stuff. So, like, I'm assuming he's, like, moving them in or he's he's saying that. (laughs) That's, That's what they're thinking is going to happen. Grace's father, Albert, who was a porter for the United States Equitable Life Life Assurance Society, which was a life insurance company, they just used way too many big words at that point in time, had been impressed with Mr. Howard's generosity and the amount of cash he'd pulled out of his pocket for Grace to count earlier. Because when he pulled out his money, he was like, here, count this. It was like $90. Wow. Yeah, which again, in the Depression, was like, you are rich. And Grace's father said, quote, let the poor kid go. She don't see much good times. Oh. I know. Oh, God. And with that, Mr. Howard took Grace by the hand and headed off. Little did the buds know that that was the last time they would ever see her. Damn. Yep. Grace never returned that night, and neither did the mysterious Mr. Howard. When the buds reported the incident to the police, officers were quick to inform them that there was no such man and no such farm had ever existed. There was no Frank Howard on record in Farmingdale, and the address he had given them for his, quote, sister, did not exist either. This man had entered their home under the guise of hiring their son and walked away calmly with their daughter. All the while, they waved, watched from the kitchen window, and told the unlikely pair to have a good time. How horrible. I know. Grace's murder would go unsolved for five years, but it wasn't without trying on the part of law enforcement. First of all, they knew there was a child killer in the area, and reports of the gray man began to link themselves up with one another. Second of all, Grace's disappearance had made the newspapers and turned into a huge national story. Posters of her were put around, and her photograph appeared in newspapers 
with a description of what she was wearing and what she looked like. The description was as follows. Height, four feet. Last seen wearing white felt hat, blue streamer in the back. Hair, dark, straight, bobbed. Eyes, blue. Complexion, sallow. Physical condition, anemic. I think that just meant thin at the time. Mm. Or maybe she was actually anemic. I don't know. Or like pale? I don't know. It says physical condition. Maybe that means like she was anemic. That was the one thing that was wrong with her. There's no explanation. This is just, and I'll I'll post the picture. It's just like a poster. If you poke her, she'll bleed real fast. Oh, no. (laughs) Last seen wearing a pink rose here with a line pointing to her coat collar. Last seen wearing a gray overcoat with fur collar and cuffs. And down the front of the coat, meaning there was fur running down the front of the coat. Last seen carrying a brown pocketbook. Last seen wearing white silk dress. Last seen wearing white silk stockings. So she was still in like... she was so cute. The pictures are really cute. And these are like her church clothes. So she has like her little hat and her little white dress on. It's like reminding me of um, in 42nd Street. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. That little girl. That's the look. There were a few clues and suspected leads that kind of went nowhere. And in September of 1930, police even arrested a man named Charles Edward Pop after his estranged wife made a call to the police saying she believed that her husband had taken and killed this little girl. Charles spent 108 days in jail before a jury found him not guilty of the crime. It turns out his estranged wife just wanted to see him rot in jail. Oh. I know. (laughs) What? Sorry, lady. Yeah, like, don't do that to another family. Don't be like, I found my kid's killer when you're like, I'm just going to put my ex in jail and make him look like a pedo murderer, (laughs) which is like, that's extreme. Yes. We all have exes we'd probably like to see in jail for a little while, but. But like, pick a crime that doesn't matter as much. (laughs) That's so intense. (laughs) The years went by, but Grace's case remained remained open largely due to the efforts of a veteran police detective named William King who had vowed to the Buds that he would solve their case one way or another, no matter how long it took. William King never did believe that Charles and— Oh, his name last name was Pope. Sorry, guys, I said Pop, and it was a typo earlier because I left the E off. <laughs> um, he never did believe that Charles Edward Pope was the guy they were looking for in Grace Bud's disappearance. And Officer King went so far as to postpone his retirement so he could t- continue to work on the case. Wow. Which reminds me of one of the officers that's working on the Delphi murder. Yes. How he, like, will not retire because he just wants to figure out what happened to those poor girls and who did it. Yeah. So, similar. Then, one chilly day in November of 1934, a letter arrived at the Bud's home. The letter was from Mr. Howard, and the handwriting matched the handwritten note he had sent to them all those years ago— to let the family know he would be a day late in his arrival. The only problem was, Delia Budd was totally illiterate. And so she ran to her son to have him read the letter for her, which he did. Oh, my God. And the letter enclosed contained words no mother should ever hear. I'm going to read it in full, without edits. The grammar is poor. There is swear words and horrible language. But I won't be correcting it, because for authenticity's sake, I shouldn't. And her son is about to read this to to her her. aloud. Please, please skip forward if you are going to be triggered by, like, child murder or torture or anything like this. Because this is a rough listen, and it isn't light on details. I prepared everyone. Okay. (laughs) My dear Mrs. Budd, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. 
On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from $1 to $3 a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body, <sighs> and sold as veal cutlet brought the highest price. John stayed there so long that he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven, took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, and then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night, he spanked them, tortured them to make their meat good and tender. First, he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and, of course, the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except head, bones, and guts. He was rest roasted in the oven. All of his ass, God, this man loves saying ass, boiled, broiled, fried, stewed. The little boy was next and went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street, rear, right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June 3, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her on the pretense of taking her to a party. <laughs> oh, I know. You said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester. I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all of my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get blood on them. When I was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run down the stairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked, how she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death and then cut her in small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook it, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. Can you just stop? Mm. Oh my God. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her though. I could have had I wished. She died a virgin. How fucking generous. Oh my God. I wonder how long that took the brother to read this to his mom. I wonder how much of it he read before he just ran out the door and went to the police. I right. can't imagine all of it. I would have gotten through like, I would have been like, why are you telling me this weird story about cannibals? Which I'll get to in a minute. Before we get into what happened next, I know if any of you guys are like me, and I know a lot of you are, you're wondering if that gruesome shit about Hong Kong in 1894 yes. is yeah. true. So I looked into it for everybody. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> the police were unable to verify the existence of a Captain Davis or his travels in Hong Kong. But here is what I can tell you. There was no famine in Hong Kong at the time, though China does have a few pretty infamous famines that did absolutely result in a rush of survival cannibalism, though the worst of the lot was 65 years after this alleged event occurred. That's not to say there weren't desperate events happening in Hong Kong at that time, because there were. In 1894, Hong Kong experienced the third global outbreak of the bubonic plague. From May to October 1894, the bubonic plague killed more than 6,000 people in Hong Kong, um, and that is not that much time for that many people to die, which drove a third of its population to leave in a mass exodus. 
Now, in case we forgot everything we learned in our plagues and pandemic episodes, I will remind you that historically, bubonic plague outbreaks in pre-antibiotic times caused absolute devastation, and the communities that saw them frequently had terrible difficulty dealing with all the death and destruction and just the sheer mass of bodies in its wake. Since there really was no effective treatment for the plague yet, the only solution was to set up preventative measures, which were mainly setting up plague hospitals and deploying medical staff to treat and isolate plague patients, conducting house-to-house search operations, discovering and transferring plague patients, and cleaning and disinfecting houses and areas, and setting up designated cemeteries uh, and assigning a person responsible for transporting and burying the plague dead. So, if you wandered into plague-ravaged Hong Kong in 1894, there is certainly a very good chance that you would have seen more than your fair share of dead bodies. Perhaps some of them were stored in a manner that reminded people of a butcher shop simply because desperate times called for desperate measures. But it stands to reason that no one in their right mind was turning to cannibalism because the chances of the consumption of a random dead human body giving the consumer the plague in that place and time was nearly 100%. Yeah, that sounds terrible. Yeah, it, it is. You'd have been better off eating stray cats or stray garbage than human bodies. So I will make an educated guess and say that the whole beginning section of that letter was historical fiction based on one person's exaggerated story. I also just can't imagine that there was just a cannibal butcher shop. Right. That would be news. (laughs) Yeah. We would have heard of that. That's not a thing that would be like, that happened under the radar. (laughs) (laughs) Just hanging up kid bodies in the window. We got a seven-year-old then. Like ducks? Yeah. yeah like you no. can't. No. But the point that I was, I'm trying to make with this whole weird plague thing is that you could have seen bodies everywhere. That's right. possible. And someone could have spun a ridiculous story like that as a result of seeing that kind of devastation. Yeah, absolutely. Or Fish totally made it up. But <laughs> we'll see that he, he loves a good story oh, as well. Great. Just to put any minds at ease, not that it's a lot of easing, that definitely wasn't happening in Hong Kong at that point in time. You could not just eat bodies. They would have had the plague. (laughs) That's not a thing. Right. Just putting all logic even aside. Okay. So back to the buds. Edward Bud had rushed to Detective King with the letter his mother had received, and as it turns out, the mysterious Mr. Howard was not as smart as he thought he was. The letter did, as I said earlier, match precisely with the handwriting on the handwritten notes the buds had received from Mr. Howard before, and it included details of the day that had not made have been made available to the public. So, Detective King could say with relative certainty that this was the real thing. The letter was delivered in an envelope that had a small hexagonal emblem with the letters NYPCBA printed on it. Detectives quickly discovered that NYPCBA stood for New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association which is easy to track down. Police questioned all the association's members and staff, checking and cross-checking their handwriting and whereabouts, until finally a young janitor at the company confessed that he had taken some of the stationery home but left it at his rooming house that he had been staying at on East 200 200 East 52nd Street when he moved out. So, like, he stole it. He stole some of their letterhead just so he could write letters. And when he had to leave his old rooming house, he had left a stack of it on the desk. Okay. 
I mean, you go to all that trouble to steal it. You don't take it with you. I know, dude. Maybe he was just like, mm, I can get more. Yeah. <laughs> I work there. <laughs> I, I know where to get some. <laughs> I know where to get some of that nice, nice chauffeur paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the landlady of the rooming house said that the tenant after the young janitor was an older man with gray hair and a gray mustache that went by the name Albert Fish. Oh, that's our guy. There he is. Albert had checked out of that room a few days earlier, so he'd stayed there the whole fucking time. Oh, wow. The landlady informed the police that Albert's son had sent him money, and he asked her to hold his check for him. So, like, the letter came to the rooming house, but he had moved out. And Fish had called her and been like, can you just hold my check for me? I'm going to come and pick it up. And this meant he was coming back. And when he did, the landlady was instructed to, like, call the police. So what she did was he came in, he was like, hey, do you have— do you have that letter for me that you received in the mail? It's from my son, haha. And she was like, ah, it's around here somewhere. Just here's a, let me get you some tea and have a seat in the parlor and I'll find it for you. I put it aside somewhere. And when he was sitting out having tea, she called the detective who was like two minutes away. Ooh, and so um, sly. I know. I love this landlady. She was like, I'm going to make a call. <laughs> she probably like dressed up, put on glasses for she it. She was like, in on the steam. <laughs> I love it. So Albert was waiting calmly in her parlor, sipping a cup of tea, when Detective King walked in. And when he saw the short, stooped, older man with gray hair and a full mustache, Detective King could hardly believe his eyes. He asked him if he was Albert Fish, and the man said he was. Detective King told him he needed to come to the police station for questioning regarding the disappearance of 10-year-old Grace Budd. And at first, Fish agreed. But then thought better of it, and pulled a razor blade from his pocket. Oh. Now, as menacing as that sounds, this was a man who was five foot five inches tall and weighed 130 pounds. I wish. <laughs> for <laughs> reference, for anyone who knows me, I'm 5'4", and I weigh 123 pounds. This guy is pretty close to my size. Facing off with, like, a big veteran police detective with a razor blade he pulled out of his pocket. Like, right. I'm going to get you. hi <laughs> No, you know, you're not. You don't know what a short people can do, Holly. <laughs> Wait till you see pictures of him. You're going to be like, no, no you, you can do nothing. You're done. <laughs> detective King, of course, disarmed him immediately and brought him into police headquarters. He was like, what are you trying to do, bud? He just, just, like, smacked <laughs> it out of his hand. Bad. Bad. <laughs> Exactly. Bad fish. <laughs> it's funny that you thought you could try. Anyway, um, once he was captured, Fish quickly seemed to realize that there was no use in lying. He did not deny that he murdered Grace Bud, but rather simply told the police that he had gone to the Bud's house with the intention of killing Grace's brother, Edward, the one who was going to work at his imaginary farm. Is he the one that read the letter? Yep. Ugh. But when he saw Grace, Fish's plans changed. Fish said it, quote, never entered his head to rape Grace Bud, thankfully. But he later told his attorney that while, hmm, warning, this is terrible, warning, that while kneeling on Grace's chest and strangling her, he had two involuntary ejaculations. Ew. Mm-hmm. But Fish's attorney used this information to create a case for Grace's murder being sexually motivated, thereby neatly avoiding the cannibalism altogether. So I don't know that that happened or they just were kind of trying to skew this in another direction. Okay. But I'm getting ahead of myself. And that doesn't make any of this better or worse. There's way worse things that happen. Fish has more confessions, and we'll get to that later in the episode. 
But now that we've finally gotten around to finding our killer, let's take a look at how he got to this point. Oh, and if you think we've covered the sickest parts of this case, I'm sorry to tell you that we absolutely have not. Oh, darn. Yeah, I was like, okay, I'm here. We did it. No, it gets worse. Oh, boy. You will also notice that I'm breaking my own rule in this episode by referring to the murderer in question mostly by his last name. But there is a reason for this. First of all, there's a nice amount of onomatopoeia that accompanies that last name. Yeah. It's a fish. Looks like a, he kind of looks like a fish. He has big buggy eyes and hollow cheeks. And second, his real name isn't Albert. It's Hamilton. Oh. Mm-hmm. Not cool Hamilton either. Albert is a name he chose later on, which we'll get to why shortly, but I feel no obligation to call this monstrosity by a name he chose and liked. No, thank you. A fish is an animal, and so too was Hamilton. Hamilton Howard Fish was born on May 19th, 1870 in Washington, D.C. to parents Randall and Ellen Fish. Leslie, I've gone on for a long enough time. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the 1870s? Because, like, a break would be very nice. Sure. (laughs) Thank you. So, it was a decade for inventions. Oh, good. Yes. The telephone, the light bulb, the phonograph, and the 635-millimeter headphone jack which is the size still widely used today, Hmm. were all invented in the 1870s. Thank you, 1870s. Yes. The Dewey Decimal System was also introduced. Remember when we used that? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The top song for 1870. (laughs) Where'd you get that hat? (laughs) Nope. It was Dance Macabre. Oh, I like that. Yeah. It's by Camille... Oh, I forgot to look this up. I feel like it's French. Camille Saint-Sans. Saint-Sans. Sure. Um, but yeah, Dance Macabre. It's very fun. Oh, it's part of Fantasia. Yeah. A lot of famous literature came out of this decade. So we have Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days. Great. Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. We've talked about Lewis Carroll before. <laughs> Mark Twain's The Adventure of Tom Sawyer. And Henrik Ibsen's. A dollhouse. Good literature. Yeah. Uh, and then the Wild West was in. Nice. In its, it was like in its prime. So Sweet. Wild yeah. Westing it up. Yeah, right? Um, so there were a lot of outlaws. These were the fa- – when I looked up famous people of 1870, <laughs> it was just all Wild West outlaws. Ringing the dinner bell. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there was Frank and Jesse James. Mm-hmm. Other famous outlaws included Charlie Beaudry, who was a cowboy, mm-hmm. Richard M. Brewer, cowboy and gunslinger, and Doc Holliday, gambler, gunfighter, and dentist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These are like sexy villains. I know, right? Oh, man. Things take a turn for the worst when the Atlas Bear became extinct. Aww. Yeah, I know. And But then things took a turn for the better when Yellowstone National Park was established. I thought you were going to be like, when they found more Atlas Bears. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but JK, there's a bunch of them in a cave somewhere. Yeah, no. Did you hear about the pandas, the no. giant pandas? They, um, they're no longer extinct. They're <gasps> going extinct. They're like... What is endangered? I'm sorry. Yeah, they're They're no longer. Good. Yeah. 
I love a panda. I know. I think for all the negatives that COVID brought, one of the positives was that there were a lot of endangered species that actually were thriving. Could we stop fucking with them? Yeah. We're going to continue on that road. I know. We should just all be able to take like a month off at like once a year. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the world. <laughs> this is your month off. A paid month off. That would be <laughs> I would love that. Here's your vacation. Everyone has the same vacation. Yeah. I liked Okay, like none of us liked quarantine. No. But the one like takeaway that I did actually enjoy was that it was like a great equalizer. Mm-hmm. We were all doing the same things at the same time. The very, very rich, the not so rich, the average everyday people. All of us were fucking watching Tiger King in our sweatpants at the same moment. And unless, it was great. Unless you worked for a nonprofit, which I did, and there was no stopping. <laughs> there wasn't. You did work. But you also did do some of the same things. Yeah, I had to watch Tiger King while working. <laughs> but you still had on your sweatpants. Oh, I sure did. <laughs> In a nice top. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. That's all you need. Yep. Great. That was um, the 1870s. Oh, that was kind of like a fun time. Yeah. <laughs> Shitty yeah. Albert Fish came along. Man. Uh, an interesting fact about Fish's parents is that his father was 43 years older than his mother. Oh. And 75 years old the day little Hamilton was born. Oh. 75. In 1870, he yes. had to look so crickety. I know. It was just father time. And if any of you have heard Chris Hardwick's bit about old sperm, just know that we're all laughing together yeah. about it right now. Yeah. Fish was the youngest of four living children. He had two older brothers, Walter and Edwin, and an older sister named Annie. I said living children because there was a fifth fish child, a boy whose actual name was Albert, and passed away in childhood. So if you guess that old Ham took on his dead baby brother's name, you can go ahead and mark that one off on your your murder bingo card. Great. One more left. Check. You're doing perfect. (laughs) You got them all. Fish wasn't dealt the greatest of all hands at birth, though it is absolutely no excuse for what he became. It bears mentioning that mental illness ran heavily in his family. His uncle and brother had both spent mandatory time in mental hospitals. His uncle suffered from mania. They're not super specific back then, but that's what they said. His sister Annie and three other relatives had also been diagnosed with, quote, mental afflictions by various doctors. His mother suffered from both oral and visual hallucinations. And by now, we all know that hallucinations are most often the byproduct of a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia. But there are other disorders that can cause them as well, like bipolar disorder. Hallucinations can also be caused by certain drugs, alcohol withdrawal, epilepsy, and that's just to name a few. We don't really know much more about Mrs. Fish, so I can't really speculate as to what was going on under the hood with her. But suffice it to say, things were not boring in the Fish household. Randall Fish. Albert's elderly father was a riverboat captain. Oh. So imagine him looking like a real old riverboat captain, too. Oh, my God. He probably got on the boat so slow. (laughs) Such an eccentric man. (laughs) But then the riverboat just went at the right pace for him. (laughs) Just cruising along real slow. He always wore a captain's hat, I bet. And they probably had to wake him up all the time. Probably. He just fell asleep cruising along. Oh, he was also a fertilizer manufacturer, which may account for a little of um, Fish's fascination with fecal matter, which we'll get to shortly. Yeah, I told you guys this one was super gross. (sighs) 
Captain Randall died of a heart attack on October 16, 1875, at Washington's 6th Street Station, which isn't super surprising, given that he was 80 at the time and it was 1875. Wow. I'd say he had a pretty good run, all things considered. I feel like that's, like, really old for 1875. Wait, it's either in the 1870s. I think it was the 1870s. It's either the 1870s or the 19 or 1917 mm-hmm. where the oldest woman alive was born and she lived till she was 122. Wow. Yeah. Okay, well that's really old. But if you're 80 in 1875, I feel like you're still pretty far up there. Yes. People are looking at you like, "Poof, any minute now." I know. Remember what people in their 60s looked like? Like a like our grand like our our parents grand Parents. The Golden Girls were supposed to be in their mid-50s. That's right. Let that sink in every time you see them. They were supposed to be like 50, 55 years old. So then imagine a 30-year-older 30, 30 man on that episode. They, they would just be visiting a grave. And then in 1870. Yeah. Like a cowboy that age. That doesn't happen. You don't see an ancient cowboy. Wild. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, this guy was real old. Sorry, I'm just stalling Holly to not continue this story. (laughs) It's okay. But Randall was the family's sole provider. And given that she no longer had any source of income and four mouths to feed, Ellen Fish did what any mother who loved her children would do in that situation. She threw the youngest into a terrifying orphanage and made a go as a mother of three for a little while. Yeah, that'll do it. Mm Mm-hmm. At five, Fish was put into St. John's Orphanage in Washington, D.C., and boy, oh boy, has the Catholic Church done a lot to erase the fact that that place ever existed. Hmm. I could only find the existence of this place in a couple of photos located in an art installation and one record of all of the Catholic orphanages who housed accused pedophiles and violent abusers. It was not a great place for a child. This is where little Fish decided he wanted to be called Albert. Apparently, the kids at the orphanage had given to calling him Ham and Eggs. Oh, Kind of cute, whatever. His name is Hamilton. They called him Ham and Eggs. And so rather than endure that humiliation, he decided to go by his dead brother's first name instead. Well, I mean, that's the only other name he knows. <laughs> There's no other names in the world. It's Ham and Eggs or Albert or nothing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like that makes sense to me, though. I guess. In, like, a way. Yeah. Still, it's morose. Yeah. He could have picked any of any other like sibling's name or like common name. He yeah, was like, well, he wasn't Dead using Albert. it. That's, he didn't want it anymore. <laughs> yeah, what was he gonna do with it? <laughs> Maybe it was his way of like honoring him. Maybe. Maybe it was the one nice thing. he No, did. we don't like him. Just the one. He's still okay. a child at this point. That's right. Okay, so well, we can feel bad for yeah, little ham and eggs who was living with like a bunch of pedophiles and. <laughs> Oh, yes. And Fish was the subject of frequent and vicious physical abuse at St. John's. All the boys were. But Fish stood out to the nuns because he liked it. Oh. How do I know that he liked it? Well, according to reports from both his own mouth and from the boys he had been in the orphanage with, the beatings would give him erections. Now, I understand medically that little kid erections, like little boy boners, are not an indication of sexual arousal. I have a son. That shit just happens. And mostly they think it is hilarious. But this is a direct cause and effect situation. And I did not research the, like, 
mechanics of blood flow and pain and stuff like that. But it was very curious. It was not happening to the other children who they were also mercilessly beating. Right. And Fish is not like other humans. When asked about his time at St. John's Orphanage, Fish said, quote, I was there till I was nearly nine, and that's where I got started wrong. We were unmercifully whipped. I saw boys doing many things they should not have done. I'll say. When he turned nine, Fish's mom had managed to get herself a government job and sprung him out of the orphanage. But in some ways, it was already too late. The damage had been done, and a spark had been ignited. I personally believe wholly in a human's ability to change and grow. I believe in the power of forgiveness. But I have to remind you that we aren't talking about a regular human here. Usually we talk about how killers are just humans. And the things that we should explore are the limits to humanity and what drives people to do the unthinkable. But with this one, we're honestly just dealing with the boogeyman. I'll make some educated assertions later, but I have to tell you this week, we are just going to have to admit that sometimes monsters are real. Yeah. In 1882, at the age of 12, Fish began a romantic relationship with a telegraph boy, which sounds like the opening scene of a musical. (laughs) (laughs) But hold on, I'm going to ruin it. This boy introduced young Fish to the practices of drinking urine and eating feces which fish took to like a duck to water. I'm sorry, what? Mm-hmm. So this other guy mm-hmm. that just brings letters to, what does he do? He's, he's a telegraph a, boy. He yeah. delivers telegraphs. Yeah. But also, he's clearly older, and he's like seeking out a 12-year-old boy for sexual companionship, so something's off a little bit oh, already. Oh, true, true, true. And he was like, you know what's also great? When you sometimes eat shit and drink pee. And Albert Fish was like, you're fucking right it is. Love it. Yeah. What drives a person to want to ingest excrement, you may be asking yourself? Well, it's hard to say. For those who engage in the consensual fetishization of these acts, it's usually about control, release, shame, and closeness, to name just a few of the feelings. I can't pretend to speak on this. I did read some things this week in attempt to understand it. It was a a tough read for me because it's not a world that I inhabit. But you know what? At the end of the day, please just don't eat shit. Please don't. It will make you sick. There must be another consensual act that will work through your needs and not give you dysentery. Oh, Holly, I know you don't like to kink shame. I don't. (laughs) I truly don't. I want to be here to understand everybody's things. But like, that's going to make you sick. It gives you like poopy breath. And that's the biggest problem. Yeah. You don't want to walk around like that. Oh, Oh, man. Can you imagine him rolling up other places after doing that all afternoon? She's like, I just had shit for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) What a nice afternoon. I ate shit for a good hour. Now I'm going to talk to you. Yeah. Ew. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. Don't be a close talker. You got to back up. (sighs) Oh, God. Oh, so on the disordered sides of these acts, if this is not like a kink that you have and that you are engaging in safely and consensually. According to the Mayo Clinic, coprophagia, or eating poo, can be a side effect of dementia, schizophrenia, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and moderate to severe medial temporal lobe atrophy, as well as mild frontal lobe atrophy. So it can be a side effect to some 
issues with your hard wiring. Mm. During the time that Fish spent with the Telegraph Boy, which sounds so pleasant, Telegraph Boy, but it's not, he also discovered that he could watch other boys undress in public bathhouses and took to doing that for hours and hours a day on the weekends. You know. That's a nice hobby. In your free time. Fish also developed a love for writing obscene letters to women whose names and addresses he would find in Lonely Hearts ads in the local classifieds. Oh, fun fact. Sure. The Comstock law was in effect at this point, which is the law that it's illegal to send any obscene, like vulgar, indecent letters or ads, anything in the mail. So it was mostly Breaking to the law. stop. I know. It was mostly to stop people from sending information on like birth control mm, or um, or abortions, like any kind of ad for that. Oh, okay. And, uh, but yeah, so it could be anything that like a Christian man would be like, oh, I don't want my wife or children to see this. No, I cannot. <laughs> oh, no. But, um, but yeah, so that's interesting that he was writing these letters because that was highly against the law. Mm. I don't think he was that informed. I don't no. think he knew of anything. Also, like, these poor women, they were at a place where they were putting an ad in a newspaper looking for a date, and they got this, like, graphic, horrifying response from a sadistic 12-year-old. Right. Huh. So now we're going to skip ahead a little bit. In 1890, soon after he turned 20, Fish moved to New York City, where he made his living as a prostitute and spent his free time raping young boys. (sighs) And somehow he was able to maintain this lifestyle for eight solid years— for his mother arranged for him to marry a woman named Anna Mary Hoffman, who was nine years his junior. So eventually, I guess his mom was like, you got to stop dicking around and get married and just like set it up. The couple would go on to have six children together. But make no mistake, Fish never stopped his relationships with men or his abuse of young children on the side. But seeing as sex work would no longer be an acceptable form of income for him, what with his wife and all, Fish got a job as a house painter. This job allowed him to travel to all kinds of different neighborhoods filled with affluent families and their young children and be out of the house for the entire day, accounted for at work, and he he had to travel, so like his wife wasn't nearby. And this is how he continued molesting children in a steady stream. According to Fish, they were mostly boys under the age of six, but he also entertained adult male lovers on the side. Hmm. Very busy. I don't even know how he had time for all of this. That just sounds so exhausting. I know. I can't even make my life work, and I'm not doing any of that. My goodness. I know. One such adult male lover once took Fish to an exhibit of medical waxworks, which, like, this was a thing back then. Mm-hmm. Like, waxworks were teaching models, but they also looked like art. Like, have you ever seen an anatomical Venus? If I have space in the photo suite, I'll post one, or I'll put it in our Instagram stories. They're unbelievable looking. They're beautiful. But they are like all the inner inner workings of a person. Um, so he took him to a place where you would see all the. And there's a lot of them in the Motor Museum as well, so mm-hmm. you can see them there. But Fish saw the model of a bisected penis, and he loved it. Oh, was so fascinated by it. This image ignited an obsession with sexual mutilation in Fish that would prove to be deadly. In 1903, he was arrested for grand larceny convicted and incarcerated in Sing Sing. Weirdly enough, this is this is all the information we have on this offense. Okay. He stole something big and got caught, which is interesting because that isn't his MO at all. Right. He wasn't a stealer. He did other stuff. 
So I don't know what this event is about, but he was locked up for it. So bear in mind, like, he has a record. (laughs) Okay. Then things are quiet again for a little while. Around 1910, Fish was working in Wilmington, Delaware. I'm assuming on, like, a house job because he was commuting to go there. When he met a 19-year-old man named Thomas Kedden. And though the word man is kind of deceiving in this situation, Thomas was intellectually disabled, which is the language that is used in all of the documentation of this case, though it is, I think, a little dated, but you get what I'm saying. And so by modern standards, this man cannot consent to to sexual acts and stuff. He just, it doesn't have the decision-making ability to do that especially not any of the crazy bullshit I'm about to describe. But at the time, he was an adult. So the first half of this part is not a crime. Mm-hmm. Now we could make that distinction. They just weren't as up to date with that stuff then. Thomas and Fish entered into a sadomasochistic relationship where Fish was the master and Thomas was the slave. There are plenty of happy people in this world who love their S&M style relationships and they thrive, and they're happy, and I'm not talking about them. I'm talking— I had to do a whole piece on it. You did. (laughs) I'm talking about a man who didn't know what he was agreeing to, and another man who admittedly loved hurting innocent people. After 10 days, Fish realized this supposedly consensual relationship wouldn't be enough for him and brought Thomas to an old farmhouse in the middle of nowhere where he tied him up and tortured him for two solid weeks, leaving him bound and terrified for hours on end while Fish was at work. So he would just like leave the house and leave it like just with his hands tied up in this house. <sighs> because, you know, you can't quit your job and go full-time torture porn without a contract or something. For sure. You still got to paint a house. Eventually, Fish wanted to act out his deepest fantasy that he saw at the Wax Museum, and so he bound Thomas completely so that he was incapable of moving and cut off half of his penis. Oh, Yeah. Fish said, quote, I shall never forget his scream or the look he gave me. That's all he said about it. Initially, Fish had planned to kill Thomas after he had done all he wanted to him so he could cut up his body and bring it home with him. You know, the home he shared with his wife and children? That home. But he realized that in the summer, the heat would make the body quickly begin to stink and draw attention. So instead, Fish, warning, poured peroxide on Thomas's severed penis stump, smeared Vaseline on it, wrapped it in a handkerchief, handed Thomas $10, gave him a little kiss, told him to go on home. What? I know. It's stated the same way in every source. There's a million sources, and it's still hard to believe. Okay. Right? That's bananas. You're like, you head on home now with your half dick. Bye. Thanks for the fun time. Thanks for the two weeks that you agreed to, right? Remember, a person who can't make decisions for themselves? See ya. After that, Fish, quote, took the first train I could get back home, never heard what become of him, or tried to find out. Then, in 1917, Fish's life would once again drastically change. But before we get to what happened next, why don't we take another little break? Okay. Leslie, why don't you tell us about 1917? It's a turning point. Sure. Yeah. So 1917 is the year that we went to war, uh, in the First World War. Mm. So that was April 6, 1917, and we declared war against Germany. And then American soldiers were stationed in France from 1917 to 1918 during World War I, and many of the U.S. 
uh, soldiers while in France visited Marquis de Lafayette's grave. Mm. And they were all just like, hey, bud, thanks for your help. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. This was another good year for inventions. So the Converse All-Star Chuck Taylor basketball shoe was invented. Oh, I love that. The Piggly Wiggly grocery store opened. (laughs) What a funny name. (laughs) And invented our modern concept of grocery stores today. And OMG was first used in a September 9th, 1917 letter to Winston Churchill from Lord Fisher. Really? Yeah. Wow. I know. I thought that was really older. That is cool. Yeah. I just think it's hilarious that it was like sent to Winston Churchill. In an official letter. Oh my God. OMG, Winston Churchill. (laughs) (laughs) You will not believe what just happened to me. It's the craziest shit. (laughs) Winston Churchill. Buckle up. <laughs> O-M-G. <laughs> I'm going to like to think of that every now and then. It's just going to come back to me. Yeah. That and the chicken of, the t- of tomorrow. Yeah. Staying with me forever. Perfect. <laughs> the term breakfast is the most important meal of the day was popularized by marketing campaigns of cereal companies after it appeared in Good Housekeeping magazine. O-M-G cereal. Yeah. OMG, Churchill, let me tell you. Breakfast. Gotta eat it. Yeah. (laughs) I was just reading Good Housekeeping. (laughs) That's what the letter was. Yeah. Obviously. (laughs) Guess what they said we should be doing. Better eat fucking breakfast. Put down the tiny sandwiches. Grab a bowl of cereal. Bowl of cereal. That's right. It all comes back to Kellogg. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to get there. We'll get there. Uh, music switched from ragtime to jazz. And like recently we did this era, kind of. We did like the 1930s. Yes, we did. And so this is that start of where ragtime was popular and then the war happened. So music and everything just kind of stopped for a while. Oh, but there was There this, will be no music, yeah. only sadness. <laughs> but we had a lot of like big bands and other things. So the music was starting to change and it'll like start to go into that jazz nice. era. And then most theater, films, and literature written in 1917 were patriotic tales. Even love affairs were often metaphors for the war. Oh. Yeah. Oh. So that's kind of what it was. All the fashion in this era is going to be kind of, or like this year is going to be very bleak because everybody's just rationing. That fits. Fish always looks bleak. He's just gray. Yeah, those were, it was very muted. They also, a lot of, um, even the upper class wanted to tone down some of their dressing because they were like, we shouldn't be. We can't look- flaunt our gorgeous money. That's right. <laughs> That's right. OMG, Holly. OMG, don't flaunt your riches. <laughs> Wear a plain shift instead when you get home. <laughs> Change into a fancy robe. Why are you so good at that? I can't. <laughs> I, I think I lived then. I think you did. <laughs> oh, no. Well, that was a pleasant time. Sure. (laughs) Let's have like a less pleasant time now. Okay. In January of 1917, Fish's wife left him for John Straub, a handyman who boarded with the Fish family. Like, who can fucking blame her? He's disgusting. This left Fish to raise his six children alone. She left him and the children together and ran away with her new boyfriend, the handyman. Oh, oh boy. I know. Fish would tell reporters later that when his wife left him, she, quote, took nearly every possession the family owned, leaving them with barely a mattress to sleep on. 
It was at this time that Fish began to have auditory hallucinations and bouts of fanatical religious behavior. At one point, he wrapped himself in a carpet and claimed that he was following the instructions of John the Apostle. This, like, hyper-religious behavior and attachment is like a big warning sign of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they get, like, serious religious ideation that they lock into. So, I mean, that flag is there for him, which it's not a crutch. Again, there are tons of people who live with schizophrenia and are productive members of society. Right. But that's also when treated, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I can't blame all of his stuff on this. We'll, we'll, we'll come back around to that. After this event, Fish became obsessed with self-harm. So after, like, his divorce, or they never actually got divorced. She just left. So technically, they were married until his death. Okay. But um, after she left him and he had all the kids, like, he just became obsessed with harming himself. And he would self-flagellate, so beat himself in the back with a nail-studded board until blood thickly ran down his legs. So this is obviously, again, clearly religious ideation. Right. Because that is a very, like, saints do it and that kind of thing. And when this wasn't enough, buckle up, Fish would douse pieces of wool in lighter fluid, insert them into his anus, and light them on fire. Um, I'm sorry, <laughs> what? He would. No, we're good. I got it the first time. But what? <laughs> yeah, nothing like a flaming cotton ball in the ass oh my God, to I'm really about, make your day. I'm about to write to Winston Churchill <laughs> right <OMG>. now. <laughs> the fuck? Oh, my gosh. Okay. I know. But by far, his favorite form of self-destruction was inserting needles into his own groin and abdomen. He began sticking them in as far as he could manage and then pulling them back out. But soon, they were getting to the point of no return, and Fish became unable to pull them out again. So they were just in there? Yep. But that didn't stop him or even slow him down. After his arrest, Fish revealed this habit to a psychologist that ex or psychiatrist sorry, that examined him. And believing him to be lying, the doctor insisted on x-raying Fish. And sure enough, there were at least 29 needles permanently lodged in his pelvic region. I will post a picture of this x-ray. It is very easily available, and it is shocking. Like, that doesn't affect him when he sits or anything? I think he likes it. Oh, maybe. He's, like, full of needles and pins. It's like a pincushion. Do you think he'd, like, fart when he had the, <laughs> like, that the cotton claw. ball on his ass? Yeah. He's like, kids, watch I this. Think... <laughs> I don't know if he'd still be alive if he did. I don't know. That would be... That would just ignite your whole intestinal tract. Are we going to have to ask Dr. Lisa about lighting farts next? This is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, Fish also tried to have his children beat him with the nail-studded paddle and do other harm to him, but they didn't care for this activity and rarely complied. They're <laughs> like, Dad, Dad, just leave us alone, Dad. Oh, my God, you're so weird. <laughs> OMG, Dad. <laughs> Oh, God. Interestingly enough, though he did catastrophic harm to countless other children, Fish never touched his own. I know. I was going to ask. Mm -mm. Interesting. He didn't, he didn't hurt his own kids. He tried to make them beat him up a little bit. Yeah. But they were like, mm, hard pass. <laughs> and that was it. Dad, you're so uncool. Ew. We uh, hate it. This is why I can't bring friends over. <laughs> Remember when you were an orphan? Gross. <laughs> oh, God. In 1919... 
Fish stabbed an intellectually disabled boy in D.C., and he later explained to authorities that at the time, he was selecting people to harm who were either black or mentally handicapped because he thought they would not be missed. This is a horrifying concept, but it isn't new. Right. A lot of killers choose to prey on what they consider to be the less dead, which is more often than not sex workers. Mm -hmm. In this instance, it isn't, but like the concept in his mind is similar. Fish also claims that at this time he had a few boys working for him who he would pay to lure other children into his clutches, though we have no confirmation of this arrangement and he is prone to exaggeration. Right. Personally, I don't think that happened. No one came forward. No one was afraid of him, though there was no no trail in that wake. Yeah. I, I just think he liked, because he does like to, like, beef up his stories. Mm-hmm. Not that he needs to, but I don't know. Though he does not go on to be caught for all of his crimes, it is estimated that Fish mutilated upwards of 100 children Oof. and killed far more than the five he was suspected of. Fish liked to torture and mutilate the children he grabbed with his, quote, implements of hell, which were a meat cleaver, a butcher knife, and a small handsaw, among other things. Ew. Yeah. On July 11th, 1924, Fish saw eight-year-old Beatrice Keel playing alone on her parents' farm in Staten Island, New York. He uh, went up to her and offered her a small sum of money to help him come look for rhubarb, which does grow wild in New York, in case you're anything like me, and wondered. That's just how my brain works. I'm like, does they even grow there? Was he lying? No, it does. You can it find does. it. Yeah. Beatrice agreed to help the nice old man and was just about to walk away with him when her mother caught them and chased Fish away. Good on that, Mom. Yeah. She's like, not so fucking quick. Not today, Satan. Get out of here. <laughs> Scraggly, weird old man that my child is walking away with. He did, however, come back later to try and sleep in their barn, but Beatrice's father was in there finishing up some work and chased him away again. Mm. He's like a raccoon that wouldn't leave them alone. Scat! Get out of here. (laughs) Three days later is when Fish killed Francis McDonald, also on Staten Island, and so we are back to where we began. So Mm. Francis McDonald is the one in the beginning. Right. During 1924, 54-year-old Fish suffering from psychosis allegedly, began to believe that God was commanding him to torture and sexually mutilate children. So here's the religion coming into play. Shortly before his abduction of Grace Budd, Fish attempted to test his implements of hell on a child he had been molesting, I guess lightly molesting because this kid came to him, named Cyril Quinn. Cyril and some of his friends were playing boxball, a game that I have never played, but some people also call Foursquare or Four Corners, Yeah, I guess on a sidewalk when Fish asked them if they wanted to come up to his apartment for lunch. I don't know why all these kids are so trusting. They're just like, yeah, I'll go with you, old guy. Make me some sandwiches. And the boys agreed. While two of the boys were wrestling on Fish's bed, they knocked his mattress partially off the box spring, which revealed a knife, a small handsaw, and a meat cleaver. Terrified, they ran from the apartment as fast as they could. Smart move, boys. Mm -hmm. Very smart. Fish did also try to remarry once. In 1930, he married a woman named Estella Wilcox in Waterloo, New York, but she divorced him after only a week of marriage. Oh, I wonder why. He's such a pleasant man. I suppose she didn't like eating shit and watching him sink needles into his taint. Takes a real specific person to want to be in that situation. 
over the next two years, a period of time where I will remind you all the police in the area were looking for Grace Budd and her captor. He was arrested twice for writing obscene letters. So there you go. Illegal. He was arrested. And consequently, he was sent to Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital for observation. So he was in the system and police were around him. Okay. And they still didn't put it together and catch him at that point in time. Probably because of the whole calling himself a different name thing, but you know. After Fish was finally arrested for the murder of Grace Budd, other details began pouring out of him. First, he confessed to what he did to Grace, telling police, again, I'm going to warn you again, this is terrible, that he brought her on a train ride into the countryside, which she loved because she'd never like really been on a train. They didn't have a lot of money. Then they walked along a remote road until they reached the abandoned Wisteria Cottage. So if you see anyone call him the Werewolf of Wisteria, which is another one of his names, this event is why. Okay. While they were on this walk, like it's pretty scenic apparently, Grace danced around and gathered wildflowers. While she did this, like he said, Fish went up to the second story of the abandoned cottage, took off all his clothes, and called her up from the window to come upstairs. Grace, with her wildflowers in hand, ran up to find Fish only to discover him naked, which caused her to scream for her mother and try to run. But she was little and this didn't work. Fish grabbed her by the throat and strangled her to death. After she was dead, he propped her head up on an old paint can, decapitated her, and let the blood drain into the can, which he threw out in the yard. He then undressed her and cut her body in half with a meat cleaver and butcher knife. Then he wrapped parts of her body in newspaper and took some of them with him and left the rest until he returned several days later to throw those parts over the stone wall in the back of the house, you doing the same thing with the tools that he had with the remainder of the body. So he just threw everything over a wall in the back of the house. After this confession, Detective King had one final question to ask Fish, and he said, what caused you to do such a horrible thing? I mean, we're all wondering. Mm -hmm. You know, Fish answered, I could never account for it. No, I just did it. Captain John Stein asked him why he had written the letters to the buds, or that, like, horrible, disgusting letter, and Fish responded that he didn't know why. Quote, I just had a mania for writing. Oh, this guy is something. Mm-hmm. That same day, the police went to Wisteria Cottage and recovered the remains of Grace. Albert Fish stood nearby, completely without emotion of any kind. But Fish didn't stop his confessions there. More dots were connecting, and Fish would not deny them. Joseph Meehan, a motorman... I love that he's a motorman. What a fun title. On a Brooklyn trolley, saw a picture of Fish in a newspaper after his arrest and identified him as an old man that he saw on February 11th, 1927. The old man had been trying to quiet a little boy sitting with him on the trolley. The boy was not wearing a jacket and was crying for his mother. The boy was dragged by the man on and off the trolley. Billy Beaton's description of the boogeyman matched Fish precisely. Police matched the description of the child on the trolley to Billy Gaffney. Detectives of the Manhattan Missing Persons Bureau were able to establish that Fish was employed as a house painter by a Brooklyn real estate company during February of 1927. And on the day of of Billy Gaffney's disappearance, he was working at a location just a few miles from where the boy was abducted. Fish confessed to this crime outrageously in the following letter to his attorney. And this is the one that I don't know if I can read. Oh. (laughs) It's really fucking brutal. It's unlike anything I have ever read aloud. So content warning. Skip ahead if you need to. Do you want to read it or do you want me to read it? Um, I'm offering my services (laughs) if you need me to. (laughs) 
Um, it's it's really really bad. I know. I'm <laughs> just saying that I don't know what's to come. So each new word is is different for me. <laughs> It'll be a surprise as I go. Whereas you know what's about to happen. I don't think I could do this to you. It's really mean. <laughs> What do you think? I'll, let me read it All for right, you. You, can read you it. look you look very sad. It's <laughs> the quotation marks. Okay. Oh my god, you guys, poor Leslie. This is Ooh. terrible. Here we go. Should I read some words? <sighs> All right. I brought him to Riker Ave dumps. There is a house that stands alone not far from where I took him. I took the G boy there. That's his last name, Gaffney. Stripped him naked and tied his hands and feet and gagged him with a piece of dirty rag I picked out of the dump. Then I burned his clothes. That's the easy part. Threw his shoes in the dump. Then I walked back and took trolley to 59th Street at 2 a.m. Which matches up with the report. And walked home from there. Next day, about 2 p.m., I took tools a good heavy cat of nine tails, homemade, (sighs) short handle, cut one of my belts in half, slit these half and six strips about eight inches long. (laughs) Oh no, you're there. I can do it. (laughs) I whipped his bear behind till the blood ran from his legs. So bad. I cut off his ears, nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear, gouged out his eyes. Oh he God. was dead then. Okay. Thank God. Yeah. Not thank God, but Interesting like. Interesting he says behind there, but he likes to say ass. ass. so many yeah. other times. And also he keeps doing horrifying stuff, but at least the boy isn't suffering anymore. Yeah. I stuck the knife in his belly and held my mouth to his body and drank his blood. I picked up four old potato sacks and gathered a pile of stones. Then I cut him up. I had a grip with me. I put his nose, ears, and a few slices of his belly in the grip. Then I cut him through the middle of his body, just below his belly button. Then through his legs about two inches below his behind. I put this in my grip with a lot of paper. I cut off the head, feet, arms, hands, and the legs below the knee. This I put in sacks, weighed with stones, tied the ends, and threw them into the pools of slimy water you will see all along the road going to North Beach. Water is three to four feet deep. They sank at once. I came home with my meat. I had the front of his body I liked best. God damn it. His monkey and peewees. What? Okay. What? What? That's what he calls penis and testicles. Monkey and peewees. Okay. His monkey and peewees and a little and a nice little fat behind to roast in the oven and eat. I told you. I made a stew out of his ears, nose, pieces of his face and belly. Like That's all cartilage. You can't even. Sorry. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt, and pepper. Well, you need you need fill, you need other stuff. Yeah, you need a flavor. Yeah, it, it was good. He <laughs> says, 
Then I split the cheeks of his, in case you were wondering, it was good. <laughs> I know. I did a good job. If you guys want the recipe. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Then I split the cheeks of his behind open, cut off his, <laughs> I told you. Cut off his monkey and peewees and washed them first. Gotta wash them. I put strips of bacon on each cheek of his behind and put in the oven. This is this is wild, I, Holly. I warned you. This is a lot. Guys, I don't mean to be laughing. This is nervous, horrified it, laughter. It is. This is this is far. This band. I know. That's why I was like, I don't know if I can read it. I don't know if you should read it. It's but it's everywhere. This letter is so okay. widely published. There's more. There is more. I know. There's more monkey and peewees. Then I picked four onions, and when meat had roasted about a quarter of an hour, I poured about a pint of water over it for gravy and put in the onions. It's like having a fucking Thanksgiving dinner right now. Mm -hmm. At frequent intervals, I basted his behind with a wooden spoon so the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and brown cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as the sweet, fat little behind did. <sighs> I ate every bit of the meat in about four four days. His little monkey was as sweet as a nut, but his peewees I could not chew and threw them in the toilet. <laughs> that is like the worst <laughs> oh, I'm like cooking wedding I, I have ever <laughs> a, a round of applause for Leslie. Oh my gosh. Because she really took one for the team. I did not want to read that. Oh. As you can see why, it's horrifying. Oh my god, Winston. <laughs> OMG. <laughs> oh no. I am gonna take this minute to remind everyone, and this may make you feel marginally better, that he is. Obsessed with obscene letter writing. Right. He loves to create the most shocking stories possible and write them down and tell them to other people. So this could be a it mere— It could be untrue. Yeah. There is—I mean, he definitely killed this boy in a manner most foul, but the rest of that stuff, there isn't any evidence of. Right. So we only have his word for it, and his words are kind of notoriously unreliable. Okay. So, I want to err on the side of the fact that that was some kind of poetic license that he wanted to make up a story about cannibalism. Okay. Maybe it isn't. That would be nice. I don't know, but I do think that that's definitely a possibility. Okay. So, clearly, after reading that, the jailers just kind of threw away the key, and Fish's lawyers locked into an insanity defense. Hmm. While awaiting trial, a psychiatrist named Frederick Wortham extensively questioned and analyzed Fish, ultimately writing about him in his book, The Show of Violence. Dr. Wortham was initially shocked at how mild-mannered Fish was, saying, quote, if you wanted someone to entrust your children to, he would be the one you would choose. Scary. Yeah, and, and people did, too. Like right. the buds, they were like, take our little daughter off to a party. We only met you twice. Albert Fish's trial for the murder of Grace Budd began on March 11, 1935 in White Plains, New York. Frederick P. Close presided as judge and Westchester County Chief Assistant District Attorney Elbert F. Gallagher, what a great name that one is, 
was prosecuting attorney. Fish's defense counsel was a man named James Dempsey, a former prosecutor and one-time mayor of the Peaks, Peekskill, of Peekskill, New York. It's a hard one to read. The trial lasted for 10 days. Fish pleaded insanity, obviously. He claimed to have heard voices from God telling him to kill children. Several psychiatrists testified about Fish's sexual fetishes, which included sadism, masochism, flagellation, exhibitionism, voyeurism, peakerism. I didn't look at what that one was. Cannibalism, coprophagia, urophilia, hematolinia. That's blood, but I think I might have pronounced it wrong. Pedophilia, necrophilia, and infibulation. Fish's lawyer, Mr. Dempsey, in his summation, noted that Fish was a psychiatric phenomenon and that nowhere in any legal or medical records was there another individual who possessed so many sexual abnormalities. And I'm going to agree. Yeah, I hate to give him any credit, but... But I don't know that there's anyone else you can compare him to. Right. The defense's chief expert witness was the aforementioned Frederick Wortham, a psychiatrist with an emphasis on child development, who conducted psychiatric examinations for the New York criminal courts. So he's what we would today call a forensic psychiatrist. During two days of testimony, Dr. Wortham explained Fish's obsession with religion and specifically his preoccupation with the biblical story of Abraham and Isaac. Dr. Wortham said that Fish believed that, similarly, sacrificing a boy would be penance for his own sins, and that even if the act itself was wrong, angels would prevent it if God did not approve. Fish attempted to sacrifice once but before, but was thwarted when a car drove past. Edward Budd was the next intended victim, but he turned out to be larger than expected, so Fish had settled on grace. Dr. Wortham then detailed Fish's cannibalism, which in his mind, Fish associated with communion. The last question Dempsey asked Dr. Wortham was 15,000 words long, detailing Fish's entire life and ending with asking the doctor, asking how the doctor considered his mental condition to be based on his life, to which Dr. Wortham simply replied, he is insane. Hey, safe bet, man. Pretty safe bet. The prosecution cross-examined Dr. Wortham on whether Fish knew the difference between right and wrong, to which he responded, quote, I characterized his personality as introverted and extremely infantilistic. I outlined his abnormal mental makeup and his mental disease, which I diagnosed as paranoid psychosis. Because Fish suffered from delusions and particularly was so mixed up about the question of punishment, sin, atonement, religion, torture, self-punishment, he had a perverted, a distorted, if you want, an insane knowledge of right and wrong. His test was that if he had been wrong, he would have been stopped, as Abraham was stopped by an angel. He's quoted as saying that, like, when they were like, well, don't you think what you're doing was wrong? He said, no, because God would have stopped me if it was wrong. Mm. The first of four rebuttal witnesses was um, Manus Gregory, the former manager of the Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital, where we talked about Fish being treated after writing obscene letters in 1930. He testified that Fish was abnormal but sane. Under cross-examination, Mr. Dempsey asked if Coprophagia, urophilia, and pedophilia indicated a sane or insane person, and Manus Gregory replied that such a person was not, quote, mentally sick, and that these were common perversions that were, quote, socially perfectly all right, and that Fish was, quote, no different from millions of other people, some very prominent and successful, who suffered from the very same perversions, end quote. Oh, do tell. You're teasing us like a gossip columnist. There are plenty of other people 
some people who are famous or rich that eat lots of shit all the time. Are there? How do you know that? Witness Charles Lambert testified that coprophagia was, or coprophilia, I think they're both the same thing, was a common practice and that religious cannibalism may be psychopathic, but, quote, was a matter of taste. Mm-mm. And not evidence of psychosis. The phrase matter of taste is disgusting here, first yeah. of all. And I don't think that was lost on this person. Also, this man seems to be like a little insane too, so maybe we look up Charles Lambert next. Okay. In the end, none of the jurors doubted for a second that Fish was insane, but they felt that he should be executed anyway. They found him to be legally sane and guilty, and the judge ordered the death sentence, which at the time in Sing Sing prison meant death by electrocution. Fish was reportedly thrilled, saying, quote, What a thrill that will be if I have to die in the electric chair. It will be the supreme thrill, the only one I haven't tried. Yeah. Yeah, it is the only one. Like, you had all the other ones. Honestly, I do not know a whole lot about the electric chair because the Green Mile traumatized the shit out of me, and I could (laughs) never bring myself to read about it. From what I know, it's a pretty cruel death, though I wouldn't say anything was too cruel for Albert Fish. Leslie, why don't you give us a few, like, old Sparky facts? Sure. The electric chair is wooden with leather straps that are fastened around the condemned's head, legs, body, arms, so they're, like, completely immobilized. Then electrodes are attached to their head and legs, usually, well, and then they always shave, like, their head or legs so that it can attach. Uh, Then various cycles of alternating current would be passed through the individual's body in order to cause fatal damage to internal organs. So first, the more powerful jolt of electric current is intended to cause immediate unconsciousness, ventricular fibrillation, and eventual cardiac arrest. So that's basically supposed to kill you right then. The second, less powerful jolt is intended to cause fatal damage to the vital organs. Um, The electric chair was intended to be a more humane execution when compared to hanging, but... I don't think it is. Once implemented, the execution by electrocution shocked America. (laughs) Oh, I see what you did there. The first person to be executed by the electric chair was William Kemmler, who murdered his wife with an axe. Mm -hmm. The first jolt knocked him unconscious, but he was still alive. They, like, they were like, wait. Like the green mile. Yeah, he's, like, fainting. And then a doctor came in and was just like, oh, nope, he's still breathing. Um, So, like, we quickly need to jolt this back up again. But the generator takes a little while they had to wait for it to recharge so once it recharged they increased the voltage and the shock caused Kemmel's blood vessels to rupture and bleed like under the skin Mm. and then the electrodes started to singe around his head Mm. and legs and they they it took them four minutes to kill him like normally it's like less than a minute. Like it's the like, green mile. Yeah it's like three it's like 30 seconds, 55 seconds or so that's um, still a long time. Yeah. Like, unless, like, we, we have a concept of, like, time when you're, like, on air and, and actors have it on stage. Like, when they say, like, you have a one-minute monologue. Mm-hmm. That seems really short. It's not. It's, it's a not. fucking eternity yeah. when you are, like, really measuring it. I feel like they were under the impression that the immediate shock mm-hmm. would cause the person to go unconscious. And not suffer. And not suffer as yeah. much. And then then all of that other shit would happen, but they'd be completely knocked yeah. unconscious and then 
all this would happen faster. I mean, it doesn't take that much to cause you, like, an electric shock. I mean, you yeah. can stick your finger and yeah. you could pee right off. Pee in a light socket. Pee in a light We've socket. We've talked about this before. And you might electrocute yourself and die. You might. You don't know. <laughs> you don't, don't do know. it. <laughs> um, That goes back to one of our other episodes, the Pappen yeah, Sisters, in case you wanted to listen to that one. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so wit- witnessing reporters claimed that it was an awful sp- or quote, an awful spectacle far worse than hanging. So that was like right away. Wow. On the very first one. Yeah, man. They were it like, did not go well. They were like, good. no, thank you. Uh, the use of the electric chair gradually declined in 1990s due to widespread adoption of lethal injection. Though uh, I did read also that they not think, great. <laughs> I know. Though um, they're thinking that the electric, the electric chair might start to make a comeback. Really? It first states that allow this because yeah. the um, the amount of drugs that you need for lethal injection is so high and it, it's hard to come by. It's also really hard to monitor. Yeah. They're not always very successful. I hmm, This is like hot take from me. Yeah. Personally, I think hanging was the most humane out of all of them. I know. Hanging with a skilled hangman when yes. they did it that you was instantaneous. Not yeah. strangulatory death. Not that. Right. The kind where you broke your spinal column and were dead within seconds. Yeah. It costs nothing. It was extremely quick. Mm-hmm. So while they were trying to escape this like cruel and inhumane death by hanging, I think they actually navigated away from the easiest and most effective method. Yeah. For sure. Anyway, that's my hot take. Um, a number of states will allow a condemned person to choose between electrocution and lethal injection. So that's still the option. Um, in 2020, Nicholas Todd Sutton chose electrocution. Really? So that was in Tennessee, I think. Interesting. Yeah. He was like, I'm going to go out with a blaze. Yeah. But then I was shocked because I was like, oh my gosh, like that just happened. But thinking that it had been a long time since. Yeah. But there were like several others before him in the 90s. I just, I mean, Ted Bundy was electrocuted that there are so many pictures of him after the fact if Mm -hmm. you want to see his dead body you can yeah or i think one i think uh there was one like in 2018 as well wow i just didn't you just don't think that happens anymore i mean like you see more lethal injections although there are so many stories of lethal injections going poorly too yeah i think that's why they were like i don't know which one to go with Mm -hmm. yeah so here are some facts bring it on some fun facts uh, so it heats up the body to about 200 degrees Fahrenheit when you get electrocuted. And electrocutioners have to wait for the body to cool down before they can remove you. They need big tongs. And because it heats them up so high, they have to, like, scrape oh, the gross. skin and stuff off the chairs after Ew. Yeah. Um, some people burst into flames. So Great. in 1982, Frank J. Coppola was electrocuted for 55 seconds, and during that time, his head and legs caught on fire. Then the smoke, like, filled the chamber up, and nobody could, like, see him, like, withering away. That's disgusting. I hate it. Um, It does also cause, because they get so hot and, like, everything's happening, like, eyeballs melt. It's, like, very, it's very gross. Well, that's so much nicer than a hanging (sighs) that takes five seconds. Yeah. Anybody that gets this will lose control of their bodily functions to the point where when they're like on their death row like when they're actually getting brought down the um security guards will be like do you want diapers like we have them for you so it's like something that they'll offer for them 
Oh, yep. my God. Um, and those who have witnessed someone die in an electric chair have reported that the smell, it, there's a smell of fried bacon. Gross. Yep. So those are just some fun facts about the electric chair. Well, it's a good thing that we know them. They come into play in this, this next bit. Fish arrived at prison in March of 1935 and was executed on January 16th, 1936 in the electric chair at Sing Sing. He entered the chamber at 11.06 p.m. and was pronounced dead three minutes later. He was buried in the Sing Sing Prison Cemetery. Fish is said to have helped the executioner position the electrodes on his body, and his last words were, were reportedly, quote, I don't even know why I'm here. Yes, you do. According to one witness present, it took two jolts before Fish died, creating the rumor that the apparatus was short-circuited by the needles that Fish had inserted into his body. Now, these rumors are largely regarded as untrue because, as you mentioned, a double jolt was actually common. That's, like, what they did. Yeah. But people were like, oh, they had to do it twice because all the needles in his pelvis made it go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like in around that time the double jolt was a little bit more common. Yeah. And nowadays it's... More just the the one that's like a really large one. <laughs> At a meeting with reporters after the execution, Fish's lawyer, James Dempsey, told the people present, so like, you know, the press and whatnot, that he was in possession of Fish's final statement, which was a handwritten note several pages long that Fish had written in his jail cell just before his death. Journalists asked Mr. Dempsey what the statement said, to which he replied, quote, I will never show it to anyone. It was the most filthy string of obscenities that I have ever read. And that is the vile and deplorable tale of Hamilton Howard Fish. Whew. Yeah. OMG. OMG, Winston Churchill. <laughs> I can't. You guys wanted this one. <sighs> to reiterate. I know, but I could totally see us having a t-shirt with, oh my God, Winston Churchill. I would wear OMG now. Winston Churchill every day of my life. I wonder if that's already a thing. <laughs> it's but our thing now. I know. Oh my gosh, you guys. Do you, wanna, do you want t-shirts to say OMG Winston Churchill? Would you wear them? We would. Tell us. Tell us all the things. Oh, oh man. Wow. Holly, that was gross. I know. Um, that was rough. That was so. Did you watch that HBO show, The Outsider? I don't know. What was that one? It had um, J Jason Bateman in it. Yes. Okay. Some of it, not all of it. Okay. That it reminded me of that. I mean, it's still very different, but That's he was why like I a child watching it because oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't. Like, I don't. I don't really like. Nobody likes them, but like, I have a really tough time with kids stuff. Yeah, that that one was hard. It was a Stephen King story. So I love Jason Bateman, and yeah. it was so upsetting. No, <laughs> I know. But that's what I was like, I just need to know what's happening so I can get through, like, what's the ending of this? I mm -hmm. need to get through it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So yeah, um, oh man, it is hard to come across anything grosser or more graphic than this one. My other option was Andre Chikatilo, who was a close second, um, and eventually we will cover him, but we're going to take a little break from the absolute extreme <laughs> toast toast to all the children oh oh god all the children to gracie's mom oh who had to god. have that letter read to her or mrs bud to edward the brother, the brother that yeah oh my god the brother that read the letter and was, was supposed, supposed to be taken oh and to 
Detective, I think it was William King, who said he would never quit until they found out what happened to Grace. And he did. Yeah. He did find it. So when he took Gracie, when Albert took yes. Gracie, um, what did it did they go on a train, did you say? Yes. Okay. So I briefly saw something, and you may have said this and I apologize. No bad. But when they got off the train, did she leave her bag on the train? Um, was that a thing? There are she- some reports that he left his bag of tools on the train and she told him, oh, you have to get that. And he right. turned back and got them. But then I also heard that she went back and got them and brought them to her. Ew. To him. Uh, maybe I missed that part yeah. and all the stuff I read. I Which hate is that. just so sad altogether. Yeah, but either way, the fact also, that she was like, oh, you forgot your tools. He also bought her a one-way ticket. Yeah. And himself. Obviously, a return trip. So he, I mean, it's obviously, terrible. he planned it. Yeah, it's really terrible. awful. Oh, man. Okay, so, so we're cheers, still toasting. Cheers, yeah. cheers to all of the aforementioned victims and to Detective King and to, yeah. to anyone who had the unfortunate, I don't know, coincidence of crossing Albert Fish's path. Uh, and we have a new patron. We do. Ian Rose. Yay! Ian Rose. Ian Rose is fun in our Facebook group, too. Sure is. Cheers to you, Ian. You're the best. <laughs> Woohoo! And if we innocently believed everyone who treated us kindly to be safe and worthy of our trust, we, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. OMD with the turtle. <laughs> You will not believe what just happened to it's me. It's the craziest shit. <laughs> Winston Churchill, buckle up. O-M-G. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>